This podcast is supported by LinkedIn Learning. We're all at different places in our careers. Some of us are just looking for a job. Others are trying to get promoted, manage a team, or do something new. Wherever you're at, LinkedIn Learning has more than 13,000 courses taught by industry experts to help you succeed in your own way, anytime, anywhere. It features a vast range of business, tech, and creative skills employers are looking for. Visit linkedinlearning.com slash learn for free to get a month free and to keep learning in all the career moments that matter to you. Hello and welcome to the July edition of Signal, a podcast from the MediaNet. I'm your host, James Poulter, and we are very pleased to introduce you to what will probably be known as the Summer Everyone's Gone on Holiday July special, because Sam and Ruth have both decided to leave me on my very much lonesome, well, not quite, because I have a very special guest joining me in the studio for this month, which I'll come to in a moment. But thank you for joining us back after another month of summer turbulence, as we've come through all of the kind of wonders of the political spectrum and uh, the media landscape as we will be looking at today but we're going to take it a little bit on the lighter side you know winter is coming to westeros um but this here is all sunshine we are not going to think about the darkness it's all going to be nice and happy and light so we've got a rather a more happy uh, light episode for you later on in the show i'll be t- talking to joe swinney about her new book home and what it means to be at home both in the media in your work and in your home lifestyle but before all of that we'll be talking through the latest stories with helen coffee who's the deputy head of travel for independent and evening stand who joins me in the studio for this month to keep me a little bit more company. Hello, Helen. Hello. Nice to see you. Thanks so much for joining us. So I um, want to talk to you, first of all, a little bit about you, Helen. What, what, tell us a little bit about what you do at uh, The Independent and also at The Evening Standard. Just what's your life of travel, constantly on a plane, boat or somewhere else? Um, I wish it were constantly on a plane. Well, no, maybe not constantly on a plane. Constantly somewhere lovely and sunny. Uh, but actually, in reality, it's kind of most of the time chained to a desk, um, <laughs> editing other people's stuff that maybe isn't always amazing. Sometimes okay. it is amazing. <laughs> um, but it's lots of rewriting, lots of fast news stories. There is a bit of travel, but that's certainly not where I spend most of my time. But I'm right in saying in your previous life, you spent an awful lot of time like trying out like spas and ski resorts and chalets and things like that, right? Um, <laughs> a bit. Yeah, so I used to be um online editor, but just for skiing and snowboarding um, at The Telegraph. So that was all ski trips. That all. does sound like the dream role, but I can't imagine it, whether or not it's <laughs> as glamorous as it sounds. It, I mean, nothing's ever as glamorous as it sounds, is it? No, it's It definitely okay. has its perks. That's what I'd say about anything in the travel sector. You get really nice perks. That helps you put up with all the other stuff. <laughs> Balances it out. And so what's your kind of week-to-week kind of look like when you're, uh, you know, like you say, chained to a desk or you work across both publications, both The Independent and also The Evening Standard? So just tell us a little bit about kind of what the average week in Helen's life is like. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> it's mainly that indie takes kind of the majority of the time. Um, we're all online now. Yeah. In case people didn't know, people still say, oh, I looked for a copy of The the Independent. I'm like, well, <laughs> hasn't been a copy of it in for a year. For a little while, yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's all online. I know, <laughs> I know. But it's really good. Um, so it's lots of, some of it's writing, kind of travel news stories. Some of it's editing longer features. Sometimes I'm writing my own longer features. It's a real nice mix of kind of writing, editing. The evening standards generally always editing kind of, 
more luxury lifestyle type travel features. So you kind of get a little bit of sense of that kind of glamour and seeing the world through the lens of other people's mm. writing sometimes. <laughs> but do you, also, you do also kind of go out and review things and try things out from time to time. What, where's the kind of most recent place you've been flung or slung for doing one of your, your most recent stories? Um, a couple of weeks ago, I went to Ibiza uh, for just for a weekend, which Amazing. was lovely. And it was all about their sort of up-and-coming farm-to-table food scene so it's very much removed from the party okay. and more having these amazing dining experiences so not 2am at a phone party in iron apple but something slightly more <laughs> wholesome much much <laughs> more wholesome and that's far more me to be honest okay you don't see yourself you're kind of you know glow sticks and bubbles at, you know kind of mm. the middle of the night not so much. I mean, the plane ride out there is quite tough, I have to say, on a Ryanair flight. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> a lot of stag dues. I must say that I would quite appreciate uh, some sunshine at the moment, although we've had some of it here in uh, South East London. The Lido has kept me probably about as much travel as I'm going to get anytime soon, but this is one of those things. So tra- travel is a sector that, you know, was that something you were always drawn to? You've ended up kind of falling into how did you end up you know writing about first of all ski resorts and then find yourself you know going out to try you know wholesome farm to table food in Ionapa no or Ibiza (laughs) I I mean I'm gonna sound awful but I did sort of fall into it Mm. so um I know that it's lots of people that's kind of their dream job but uh for me I retrained as a journalist because I knew I wanted to do that and then it's just all lucky chances isn't it I was editing a business magazine and I hated it it's not really my cup of tea and saw this job come up for um, I think it was junior sub-editor or something really lowly uh, for Ski and Snowfall magazine and I thought well you know what I'd rather start at the bottom with something more interesting and so I went off and did that and then it's just kind of been a natural progression so from looking at what the FTSE was doing to you know, kind of reclet timetables and things like that, <laughs> yeah. you know, kind of apres ski. Sure. I'd love it if there was a reclet timetable. <laughs> well, I'm always ready for reclet, so I don't need a timetable. That's absolutely fine. And so so you've um, come you know, kind of through this kind of travel city and you've come also you know, into the, the world of kind of the big kind of national broadcast, uh, broadsheet publications and also you know, kind of the daily London um, you know, kind of evening uh, papers as well. And as a Christian and coming into that environment what's that been like in terms of going from maybe something more the long form the magazine scene into that the kind of daily news do you kind of have ever get sucked into that kind of more daily grind and the kind of the bigger stories that are kind of going on having to deal with that kind of day-to-day has that changed at all um it's not well i mean at the independent it's actually been really nice because i had a brief stint at the express for about four months and i found that really tough because I think working um, not necessarily at a tabloid but a tabloid that has really different uh, political opinions to you and also that impinges for me on my faith as mm. well I found that really tough because day to day I mean in travel you're slightly lucky in that you are a bit more sheltered from that but there's still rules about what you could and couldn't write about and everything had to be very pro-Brexit and you know that for me sometimes that is a matter of conscience and there's definitely a struggle there and yeah. especially when you know the people that are writing, particularly vitriolic stories, have no investment in it. They don't believe it. They just get told from their superior, this is what you need to write. Um, I think 
yeah, it's quite eye-opening. So you've had to kind of deal sometimes with reconciling kind of who you're working for and what they might be saying versus the stuff that's much more removed in terms of what you're working on on a day-to-day, like you say, the, necessarily the, the politics of, you know, kind of farm-to-table <laughs> is yeah. you know, maybe slightly further away, although it probably has a Brexit-related angle. but Probably, uh, but yeah, it's definitely most of the time on, you know, at the indie that it's more kind of, yeah, long form travel features, and most of the sort of political angle of that is one will chime with my morals anyway. So I haven't been so challenged so far in this role because most of the time I just think, oh, that's what I I think already. Great. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of the people listening are also working in similar positions to to yourself, working in yeah, you know, kind of the journalism, working in broadcast uh, or content production in some way as Christians. And do you get a sense of how much of a sense of community do you think you have with other Christians working in the media? You connect. How easy is it to connect with other Christians who are working in in those kind of disciplines? Is it something that you kind of stumble across, or is it something that you've actually kind of sought out at all? Um, I think it's quite hard. Um, I don't think I've encountered... I mean, it's probably partly my fault because I don't go actively seeking it, but it's hard to know how to do that, you know, yeah. uh, when, especially when you're new somewhere. So I always try and be quite open about my faith because I think that's the first step is like, well, if someone hears you say something, then they'll know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, it's it's certainly not easy. I think sometimes it's quite alien and a lot of people are sort of weirded out by it or just <laughs> like, oh... Right, okay. <laughs> Something that doesn't they don't come across every single day in the office, I suppose. No, definitely not. Um, I think it was slightly easier at The Telegraph, actually, because I wrote more personal opinion pieces then uh, for Telegraph Women, and so I'd write a few about faith and faith at work, and I remember that brought a few people out of the woodwork to say, oh, I'm a Christian, but nobody knows, um, which is quite nice. But it still didn't really quite lead to any you know like something like a prayer group or I mean that would be really nice I just struggled to know how to how to find them so a couple of stories to uh whet your appetites for things in the media and as I say I wanted to you know it's the summer things are a little bit lighter so let's talk about let's leave the the days of Brexit talking and elections behind us and talk a little bit about the media in a more interesting fashion but a little bit of the political edge to begin with uh, as you know in the past couple of months we've talked a lot about the idea of satire on the show and the the role of satire and it uh, raised its head again this month in a new show that is coming uh, with a kind of US flavouring uh, but very much a UK bent from um, Nish Kumar called The Mash Report um, this is reported in the Guardian uh, this week. Uh, the Mash Report is coming to BBC Two. Nish Kumar, who is uh, you might know him from a number of uh, shows that he's done, uh, particularly on uh, BBC Radio Four, uh, pre- presenting uh, Newsjack uh, throughout 2015, which is a fairly kind of popular kind of uh, news uh, satire show on Four Extra. He's now coming to uh, face this new show called The Mash Report. And is this Helen? Is this the kind of thing that you would engage with? Are you kind of one of the fans of the, the late night kind of satirical topic you know, shows? Is that kind of thing that you would watch on of an evening? Uh, yeah, I love a bit of political satire. Um, I probably wouldn't stay up late to watch it because I'm also a loser, but I would watch <laughs> it, you know, on catch-up or something sure. the next day. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a really exciting development. I'm surprised it's taken us this long, actually, to develop 
our own because it feels like a very British thing as yeah, well. Yeah, this article actually kind of lists. If you look at the print version of it from the weekend, they they listed some of the other kind of shows that have had a go at it. And I think obviously, yeah, we've had. It's. I find it fascinating because we've seemed to have managed to export loads of Brits mm. to America to do these shows, but yet be able to do one here, like James Corden tearing it up with the Late Late Show. Yeah, kind of. Um, John Stewart. Yeah, kind of various other um, people. Yeah, kind of in the US have made these shows such a popular format. But we haven't been able to nail it here, and I don't really know. I, I mean, I think Nish Kumar is a, a fantastic kind of choice for this. Yeah, um, coming out with a, he's got that kind of really witty edge, um, but yeah, a very political mind as well. So I think yeah, it'd be super interesting to see how he kind of tackles this, uh, and yeah, that kind of slightly more British kind of angle to it. Yeah, we've had obviously a. a, a, a a Christian a member of the panel, you know, kind of um, Ian Hislop on, on Have You Got News For You, kind of doing this for something like over 50 seasons. But it seems to be the only thing that we've managed to kind of get out the door, and I'm not quite sure why. But, um, you know, that's one of, those, uh, one of those shows that's kind of coming up. And I think, you know, from a Christian perspective as well, I think it's really interesting to kind of see us taking this like slightly more edgy look at the world. And I think that, you know, we can be often, we'll talk with uh, Joe Swinney coming up in the interview later on in the show about this idea of the Christian bubble and putting ourselves into it. Do you think that when you're talking to friends at church, you know, that they're engaging with these things, you know, do you get the sense that, like, they're breaking out and re- reading and listening to that kind of slightly more edgy political stuff? Uh, for sure I do. But I mean, I have to say I go to a church of very like-minded individuals. So everyone there is very politically engaged very switched on like they there is i mean i'm not going to say there's no christian bubble because there's probably one i can't even see but (laughs) um that certainly wouldn't put them off you know this idea that christians have to be nice all the time that they they don't have to be critical they don't have to be discerning and i think that's really wrong you know Mm. we can definitely shine a light on things um it's not about being really awful and horrible, but I think that's why uh, Nish is a good choice because he's not that kind of comedian that just takes people down, yeah. you know, heartlessly. Yeah. I, I, one of the great examples, if you've not watched any of these, um, is from a comedian, John Christ, who um, has been doing this series of videos on YouTube and Facebook. He's an American comedian, but kind of ripping off some of the kind of Christian subculture stuff in a very satirical, witty bent. If you've not watched the Millennial Missionaries, who are... Uh, Quinn and Kylie who go to um, you know kind of evangelise the scuba instructors of Aruba I, I highly recommend it but you know that kind of uh, Christian um, you know that edginess that, that that we can kind of poke fun at ourselves and kind of take a kind of a you know, slightly more satirical bent just doesn't seem to kind of come up very often in church life and I just think that that's definitely something that we should be seeing more of so yeah the mass report hopefully that they will uh, kind of send up um, you know parts of the kind of the British Christian subculture as and when it comes around in, in the right kind of way we mm. shall see and then I suppose the other story that we cannot ignore um this week of the uh the revelation i know that helen this is something that is uh, a little bit close to your heart with the the revelation of the new doctor who um mm. just tell me how you feel about kind of a female doctor coming to the tardis oh i mean there are no words i'm so excited <laughs> i'm so happy i wanted this to happen back when they picked capaldi and they're was sorely disappointed i think a lot of people were i think they knew this time they had to mix it up again i think if they picked another white man not that there is any issue with white men but if they'd done it again 
there would have been just a sort of collective cry yeah. of disbelief. Well, I mean, if you are, you know, kind of just returning from, uh, you know, trying out the samples of, you know, kind of various different vegan delights on on the south coast of one of the Majorcan islands, then um, you might have been able to miss this news that Jodie Whittaker <laughs> has been uh, announced as the 13th Time Lord. Now, m- the interesting thing about this as well is that not many people have kind of necessarily knew who she was. She's somewhat more of an unknown, fairly recent um, kind of uh, significant role in, in Broadchurch, which if you've not seen, I highly recommend going back and watching a fascinating kind of uh, portrayal in that show but um, do you kind of feel that people are going to kind of warm to her because she's more unknown or do you think that you know, it would have been they should have gone with you know, a Capaldi who is you know, very recognisable as an actor when he kind of started in the role how do you feel about it? I think um, well we'll have to wait and see because I don't want to judge either way until I've seen it but I think it's a very wise decision because actually before Capaldi if you look at the people that they've picked like think about Matt Smith at the time when he got that role no one knew who he was I mean he'd done a couple of one-off sort of performances in other shows but he was a real unknown and I think it just instead of people coming with all these preconceptions you can make up your own mind they can make the character what they want I think actually Peter Capaldi struggled against you know he already has this typecast of being you know nasty with the eyebrows Um, (laughs) and he's you know slightly trying to overcome that because you know at times I know they they wanted him to be a bit more edgy but sometimes it felt a little bit too much kind of based on the fact we already think he's a bit of a you know the nasty guy how how much do you think though that this is just one of those things where it's now don't want to say kind of political correctness kind of over Ben but some of the criticism that's come back on this in the past couple of weeks is that what uh, there was a very interesting story um this morning about you know actually from the Daily Mail of all places which I'm not necessarily always you know kind of heralding but um about what the death of all of these kind of like British uh, of, of um, male heroes in popular media and that somehow we have it's kind of like we have to have a woman do this role and it's like do you think that there's an element of that where it's like it was like well we have to it's like why can't it continue to be a man I just, I'm not sold on it one way or another but I just mm. feel like it's like one of those topics where there was like it's reached a level of popular consciousness where it's like we have to put a woman into this role because having a man is somehow no longer an acceptable thing to do do you ever get a sense of that or is it just like no I was always after a girl in this in into the TARDIS I say no on this one because I think it's really different. People always make these stupid comparisons like, why not just make James Bond a woman? You're like, that is different because it's a male character. It is a man. The time when James Bond was set, you know, it's it all it works with that. I'm not saying I would ever rule it out, but it's a very different concept to time travelling alien that completely changes face, everything, accent every time he regenerates. Um, slash she regenerates there's you know and there's no rules around that in terms of gender that say it's a it's a man it has to be a man and I think actually you know they really paved the way for that previously because if you've seen it you'll know that the master came back as the mistress which is I think you know their thought out way of kind of paving that way and saying (laughs) there may have been a little bit of retconning kind of going on I think so (laughs) but it worked you know it worked with that as well you could see there was there was no question of this is insane. How on earth could you be a woman? It's like, why not? It's a completely made-up alien race. 
Absolutely, and you know, kind of taking up that role now in the TARDIS, you know, it will be, I think, change the dynamic of the whole show again, mm. and it needs that kind of reinvention because this is now, you know, kind of six, seven series into what is a reinvention of something that's been going on for, you know, for decades. I think actually, you know, kind of bringing a woman into that role and also probably changing up the uh, the role and the place of the Doctor's assistant is going to really kind of change the, the vibe. So we have to look forward to Christmas, see how mm. that's going to sort of play itself out. But uh, safe to say, I think you're fairly kind of happy about. That. Yeah, I'm very excited. <laughs> <laughs> well, as uh, the Doctor takes up residence in their home, I, I can't say her or his anymore because that just doesn't work, <laughs> but her home, uh, it, it will be her home in the TARDIS. Uh, we'll be thinking a little bit more about home after the break. Coming up, I've got my feature interview this month on Signal with Joe Swinney. She's the author of multiple books, God Hunting and Through the Dark Woods, and her new book, Home, which is about the quest to belong. We'll be talking about the idea of how we working in the media can kind of find the sense of home in our um, vocations and talking about the uh, Christian identity and how that's represented as well. So coming up after the break, Joe Swinney, uh, author of Home. Stay with us. Hi, Signal listeners. I'm here with Joe Swinney, the author of Home, The Quest to Belong, a new book talking about the idea of home and what it's like to uh, build up our identity in a culture that's maybe not our own or one that we are finding ourselves in. And uh, Joe hails uh, from all over the place, I suppose. Joe, where do you feel most at home? Well, where I hail from is one of the worst questions that I'm ever (laughs) asked in a social setting. Sets me off into a bit of a fluster. Where I feel most at home is where I live right now, which is Surbiton. Which is my uh, not current home, but spiritual home, I must say. I was born and raised there, so I know Surbiton so very well with all of its eccentricities. Um, How long have you been in, in Surbiton? What's your kind of suburban life like? We moved there four years ago for Sean to become the associate vicar. And before we went for a little recce uh, for the job interview, neither of us had ever heard of it. So I grew up in without a TV in Portugal. Sean grew up in the States. So we hadn't come across the good life, yeah. which is Surbiton's great Absolutely. claim to fame. Although yeah. apparently not shot in Surbiton. No, not at all. Actually, uh, Elstree Studios, I believe. So uh, yeah, very yeah. not uh, much in Surbiton. The wrong side of the river for Surbiton. <laughs> so we don't have pigs in our back garden, no. but we do have lots of fruit berries, okay, bushes. <laughs> which is one of the things that you, you love, I understand right fruit i really bushes. love fruit, fruit bushes yeah, yeah all fruit of any kind <laughs> bushes or trees <laughs> she's got a passion for fruit and, and so um so joe you've written this book about home and this idea of kind of building a sense of identity and culture or certainly that's what i took from reading it of our, our idea of where we live um isn't just a geographical one it's not just a cultural one but it's uh, made up of all sorts of things in our identity just what spurred you to actually write the book in the first place what spurred me was the fact that it has been quite a long and painful search for me and I have had periods of time in my life of kind of despairing I suppose that I would ever get to a place of feeling at home which came really from being quite attached to Portugal as a child I lived there from when I was five to when I was 17 Um, and then after we left we had two years as a family without an address so not kind of homeless in the sense of dwelling beneath a bridge but um homeless in the sense of not having a base and my parents work for 
uh, Arosha, which is a Christian environmental charity, and they were doing really amazing work expanding that out from Portugal to becoming a multinational thing. And the four of us kids would uh, travel around joining them in school holidays, and then I left school part way through that and travelled on my own steam around Zimbabwe and southern Africa. Um, and then at the end of that, I broke up with my boyfriend at the time. And Happens both, to all of us. <laughs> it does. It's part of the... Part of life. Jolly pass, pass tapestry. <laughs> but that, so those kind of things all together led to me feeling entirely rootless and quite frightened by the idea of, of the big wide world and where my place in it was. And my first strategy of to dealing with that was to spiritualize it and to decide that it was very holy not to have a home and I was like the um ye olde pilgrim and (laughs) (laughs) Abraham and me we were we were on the you and Moses being the nomad wandering through the desert kind of situation (laughs) and and the desert obviously ended up being you know suburban southwest London in the end (laughs) it did (laughs) I know who knew um so I was quite judgy at that point as you know you can only be in your early 20s when you know everything and thought that people with mortgages had completely sold out um but actually what that was disguising was this real panic and sense of being a free-floating atom in the universe not connected to anything and the turning point was very specific actually I had um I was in a class called the Christian Imagination I was doing a degree in theology in Canada yeah and I had done a picture, a painting, a really ugly painting of a tree. And my tree was in space. <laughs> and it was designed to look really happy and like all had sort of psychedelic flares everywhere. And it was having a great time in space. And I explained to my class when I was presenting it that this was me and that I could free, free float and be fine. And my professor looked really sad and said trees need soil yeah <laughs> putting down roots that wasn't necessarily the thing that you were kind of physically thinking about but needed that in some yeah. way yeah so he and I and the various other people I had come to know and just what I was reading and discovering through the bible was that actually it's not unholy to commit to a place and to bed down and it's quite a deep psychological need it's a deep spiritual need and um, part of discipleship really is that we we come to know God and ourselves and each other in a specific location and time. And you've also just over time not come into understanding uh, a sense of home just through the physical location, but also in terms of vocation as well, right? And uh, Just talk to us a little bit about how that also changed your sense of kind of home and place and, you know, do you, you know, would you see yourself now as an author and that is where you are at home, being an author? Or, you know, do you kind of, is that only a part of it? That's a really good question. Um, and I, I suppose I do feel very fortunate to have work that I love and that does um, that does fit with what the shape I feel God has made me. But at the same time, I know that I'm very spoilt in that regard and I yeah. don't um, I don't have that lightly in my life and I am aware with every book that it might be my last but also um, need to say that I'm not making a living as an author Mm. I work for a charity and I do lots of freelance editing and articles and speaking and I think like a lot of um, people in the artistic field you kind of scrap together (laughs) (laughs) enough to make to make it it all come together and you say also that 
yeah, and this is this is something I think that for a lot of our listeners, uh, you know, working in kind of these, you know, many in the gig economy from a you know, kind of freelance perspective or working in you know kind of jobs that don't necessarily last 10, 20 years like they once used to, that they are you know kind of living out this life as well, and that career has changed somewhat. That you know that the idea of what a, a job means to us. You have an entire chapter in the book looking at kind of the idea of home and how work. You know, we can often place a lot of our identity in that, um, and that that idea of you know kind of a job for life and it becoming part of your identity and feeling at home and looked after and you know all that kind of millennial entitledness that we often hear about in the media is actually that is changing, right? Yeah, you know, that we're not going to see work necessarily always being a job, but much more about a vocation. Well, I think that you're right. We can't we can't make. Are often people can't make their work their primary place of home because it is less stable and predictable. Mm. I I do still think though that it's right to invest in your in your work, whether it's your workplace or your work colleagues or the actual kind of sweat of your brow. <laughs> I think what I what I was hoping to convey and explore in the book is that the sense of home is built up with a lot of facets mm. um i wanted to introduce the idea of workers home because i think it is it is a big one and sometimes i don't think people realize that it is until until it's lost so when people retire or go on maternity leave or um lose a job or get post i don't know when when the job changes sometimes what the impact of that is is this deep it hits this deep home thing for us we suddenly feel we don't know where our place is yeah. where we belong in the world and, and you particularly in the church as well i think we have a habit of somewhat over spiritualizing jobs from time to time but, you know every every person kind of feels you know they are called to this role um and that can often be something you hear in churches or you know in kind of christian settings that oh i was called to do this job god wanted me in this place or you hear people being really apologetic about if they're doing a job that they don't have a sense of calling yeah. about. And, and I think for me, you know, I've always found this interesting, this idea that jobs you know, are for a time and a season and it's not necessary, but a vocation or you know, kind of your, your sense of purpose doesn't have to derive from the, the just the place that you go and sit during you know, kind of nine to five. Uh, do you think that a lot of um, you know, kind of those who are entering into the workplace now, particularly entering into kind of the media, creative industries, you know, trying to make their way as, whether that's as an author or as a journalist or working in these spaces, that that's going to have to change a little bit, the way that we talk about the role of the job um less being something that you're going to kind of get yourself into for life but something that's you know you're going to have to have an ever sensing you know an ever changing sense of what it means to work and how that fits into your home life so one of my little soapboxes is <laughs> that i think people ought to um have honor honor them every task i think that's something the incarnation teaches us is that there's um good there's good in very basic things and doing them well and doing them um for the glory of god i think that every every part of what needs to happen to keep the planet running and society running has got honor whether it's um sweeping the streets to caring for people in hospital you know the whole the whole realm and i think people can sometimes hierarchy put a hierarchy in place that's really unhelpful we can't have everybody um being artists and we can't have everyone being church leaders and we can't have everyone being doctors like we need we need the full spectrum and i think um especially for artists and people who have this big creative shape um and who they are you don't you don't need to be paid 
for that to have a place you can you can express your creativity um, in and around it um, in your leisure time and in your in the in the way you do your job in who you are yeah. it doesn't have to be in those nine to five work hours and if I just think there's something really honorable and good about working to provide food for your family at the, yeah. the most basic level and if you if you kind of zoom out and look at the whole planet that's that's all people actually have a choice to do in a lot of places um, and we've become very spoiled in the west if um, there's this Maslow's pyramid thing yeah where you've got the hierarchy, the of, hierarchy needs, yeah. of needs mm. and and when you've got your basic needs for shelter and food met you can sort of look around you and try and fulfill yourself <laughs> in more <laughs> detailed ways but but I really, I what I try to teach myself, and what um, I really hope is that we can all realise um, that that is a real luxury. Yeah, to absolutely. have work that has meaning and doesn't just help us survive. Well, if people want to become friends with you, Joe, where can they find you on on the social medias and things like that to kind of come <laughs> and easily. be friends with you? I'm not hiding behind a rock. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Joe Swinney originally. Um, um, you can. Facebook friend me if I've got a mutual friend with you I'll probably accept it <laughs> so um, if you're in need of friends then you can go find Joe. <laughs> I do some blogging on joeswinney.com and there's a, a great uh, playlist also up on the website as well that goes with the book as well do you just want to tell us a little bit about that yeah so it's um, a collection of songs about home which I like <laughs> there's a lot of songs to choose from actually a lot of songs about home what's your personal favourite on the list currently it's Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros a song called home original yeah. <laughs> yeah great stuff well if you want to check out the book um the book is called home the quest to belong and joe thanks so much for joining us on this episode of signal great pleasure thank you for having me thanks so much there to joe swinney you can get her new book home the quest to belong at all good bookshops and online of course and we would love your thoughts on the interview if you want to hear more than of that interview as well we'll be putting it into the show's uh, playlist over the next couple of weeks so watch out for that and you can reach out to her and myself over on twitter you can do that from at the media net on twitter use the hashtag signal so we know you're talking about the show or leave your comments and replies over on facebook search for us the media net on facebook so i'm back here with helen and we are talking about playlist recommendations things that you should be downloading listening to reading coming up over the next couple of weeks on your sun lounger wherever it is that you may be uh, delighting in your vegetarian halloumi burger with a side of whatever else uh, helen found <laughs> for you on the coast of ibiza a couple of weeks ago um and helen you've got a story about the, the news and newsreaders tell us what's the story um, I read it because actually one of my friends sent it to me. So if I've got a few friends who work in the media. And um, it's on The Guardian and it's basically how do newsreaders escape the news. Um, and it's just interviews with various newsreaders. And it's I just think if you do work in the media, it's so relevant. It's, you know, you're not the only one that finds that grind of news, 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 especially recently when we've had so many terrible things happening. I think it's really good to read that and go god even the guys at the top absolutely struggle with yeah that. this is a guardian magazine piece i think it was from last uh, saturday's mm. uh, edition you know a really interesting top news readers you mentioned i think christian guru murphy a couple of others in there kind of talking yeah. about kind of how they get away from the news uh, you know what were some of the examples that they kind of they gave us um well so my favorite one was uh, emily maitless from newsnight and hers is just I think she made all, all of me and my friends cry when we read her bit. Maybe we were having an emotional day. 
but hers is just it's so uh real and it's so honest and she talks at the end basically about interviewing someone in manchester about the attack and about how basically she was off camera and she started crying and she wrote there is something liberating about that my 20 year old self would have thought oh god how unprofessional now i think why not admit that i find this hard it's true. I think that it's really interesting. You, know, you read all of their different accounts in that piece, and it's you know, it comes through. You have to remind yourself that these people get thrust into the most difficult situations on a daily basis. You know, in front of terrorist attacks, you're know, thrown out to war zones, you know, or just dealing with people who've got heartbreaking stories, whether that's health related or you know, kind of loss or whatever it might be. And like they're humans too. Like mm. they have to deal with it in the same way that we we all do. We, you know, sat watching the news. I remember you know, kind of in in our last episode, we were talking a lot about the what how I felt particularly in the wake of the Grenfell Tower um, you know disaster having I've been down there on the day to kind of like work with some of the people that had kind of come out of it and you know that really affected me for a couple of weeks so, I mean I read this and I was like gosh these guys I mean that, that was a one-off incident but these guys deal with that every single day and like that idea of like retreat and getting away and actually like having something that they can go and distract themselves with I think is is super fascinating so mm-hmm. um, yeah I, I think how do you kind of deal with that you know you're in the newsroom on a daily basis right or you're surrounded by the kind of the stories I imagine, like with the the guys here at Premier, where we record, you know, there's all different stations blaring at you all the time. Do you ever feel that you need to kind of get away from it all and hide in the news, or is the travel kind of desk, you know, kind of sheltered from some of that in in a way? Um, no, you do feel still really part of it, even when you're not doing those those hard kind of churning stories about terrible things. Because I think in any newsroom, you've always got sort of TV screens. They're blaring up these interviews all the time. You're seeing footage all the time. You can't get away from it. Um, and you, I don't. There's something about being in the newsroom that you you don't feel protected from it. You feel you can sense it going on all around you. Mm. And I definitely get a bit of news fatigue and. And think like so. I recently just went on a little break to Whitstable, and that was just a holiday. But I, I didn't really look at the news or at my phone or or do anything because I just didn't want to. I thought I just I've had enough. Do you have any kind of habits that you've cultivated to kind of manage your news intake so you kind of don't become overwhelmed with it at all? Um, I try and I mean I think I'm bad as most people are bad for you know checking the phone all the time, checking yeah. the social media because I know that now if something really big happens that's probably the first place I'll see it so I try and just actually leave in a different room and make it a bit harder for myself to, because you just it's in your hand before you think about it absolutely and you think how did I just pick that up and start scrolling I didn't even think it a friend of mine has a, a, good, a good tip with their their family where they've moved all of their phone chargers and plug sockets to, to charge their phones to the hallway so that when they arrive home they have to put their phones in the hallway so they're not kind of got them in their hands I think that's a potentially uh somewhat radical but a very uh, kind of useful tactic well if, if you're um, not trying to escape to the news and you want to get even more of it my recommendation this month for the playlist is a new app uh, I thought that might be something different um, it's called Anchor and it is uh, if you're into podcasts and you're listening to one so I suppose you probably are then this might be for you um, it's a, a new app service it's you know kind of blending this idea of podcasting a social network not un- uh, unlike Twitter into a kind of single package where you can create and share audio in kind of short snippets and basically start a station or like a radio station as, a, as an idea um, there's a number of their big kind of publications trying this out particularly in the tech space people like the Virgin and Gadget starting up new uh, feeds on there but also a lot of those who are kind of the new stars of YouTube um, particularly um, Sarah Dietschy who's a very um, you know, kind of influential YouTuber in the US is starting using this a lot and I've been playing around with it as well you can go and find me if you want to 
I'm uh, just uh, slash JP on anchor.fm. But yeah, it's, I just think it's a really interesting kind of model and moving away from just a visually streaming, you know, kind of scrolling feed to actually listening to some of these little news clips. Is that something that you think, Helen, you might try out, Anchor? It looks a bit a bit techie for me I mean I am you know like an 80 year old woman when it comes to a lot of these things but I do like the idea of um yeah about it does feel like a natural next step sort of hearing instead of seeing yeah I definitely be more inclined to do that or listen to that than I'm not an Instagram kind of person I don't really like looking at people's like perfect photos it does seem like a kind of retreat from like selfie culture to being like this Mm. is not about things I'm taking a you know, wonderfully crafted photo of, and it's also not just a picture of me, but it's like actually much more. I think that if you listen to some of the content I've experienced on Anchor, it's much more thoughtful and much more opinion led because people actually feel they have to say something. Um, mm. And it kind of puts the emphasis back on the written or spoken word again. And some really interesting formats, people playing around with everything from like Daily Thrones, um, is a user on there who's doing, uh, doing a daily day of. <laughs> Game of Thrones podcast to Star Wars Explained, which if you're uh, you know kind of after something there, um, go take that. And also things like the the medical mixtape, who look at kind of he- elements of health and hip hop, uh, uh, which are a kind of um, interesting kind of uh, mix. So um, yeah, that's my recommendation for this month. Anchor.fm, or you can go download Anchor on iOS um, and I think Android as well uh, as a, a new app to try out. Well, that's about all that we have time for this month. Uh, thank you so much to Helen for joining me in the studio this month to talk about the news and what it's like to to write. Where are you just setting off to next? Where's the, when's the next travel trip? Um, it's possibly Jamaica. Okay, but that's a bit not more glamorous. Confirmed yet. <laughs> <laughs> and um, if if they are not, you know, kind of finding you on the beaches of Kingston, uh, where else uh, can they find you? Can where can people follow you on Twitter? Oh yes, uh, it's at Lenny Coffee, which is L E N N I C O F F E Y. Um, I'm generally I should be posting more about travel but generally it's just angry political statements so <laughs> okay well if you're into uh, some of that stuff then you can go and find Helen on Twitter and you can find me at James Poulter and you can also follow us at the Media Net on Twitter and let us know what you think about the show by using hashtag signal we would love your thoughts you can also find us about on Facebook and don't forget if you want to get your tickets for the conference you can find that on Eventbrite or sign up on themedianet.org thanks once again for joining us for the summer special uh, Ruth and uh, Sam and I will all see you back after you've all got a nice tan in August so for now thanks for joining us on this month's episode of Signal it's bye from me it's bye from Helen bye from me This podcast is supported by LinkedIn Learning. We're all at different places in our careers. Some of us are just looking for a job. Others are trying to get promoted, manage a team, or do something new. Wherever you're at, LinkedIn Learning has more than 13,000 courses taught by industry experts to help you succeed in your own way, anytime, anywhere. It features a vast range of business, tech, and creative skills employers are looking for. Visit linkedinlearning.com slash learn for free to get a month free and to keep learning in all the career moments that matter to you.